before you know it, the hairs are up on the back of your neck, and like, this is good. And then, you, then we go, should we open a restaurant? And then you go, let's just do this. And it's not about the money. This is knowing that we're here to serve, but we're not servants. And that's that's been the powerful, I guess, learnings over the last two years. We're here to serve, but we're not servants. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The underlying theme of many discussions we've had over the last two years has been that of change. Change that has occurred in people, in practices, a chance to change and the potential within it. But as the normal day-to-day returns, what's being left behind, what is being adapted, and how do we navigate our way through a new lens? Jason Roberts is a chef by trade for the last 30 years, a very influential food communicator too. Jason, how are you? G'day, Huckstep. Good to, good to, <laughs> nice to chat to you, but I was actually just, just researching uh, music and came across genocide and was <laughs> clearly surprised with uh, some of the music that you were singing. Mate, gosh, you're a talented. <laughs> how incredible. Well, I think I sounded more like a coffee machine in those days when I sang like that. I think it's magical. I think it's, I think it's magical that we all that we all have this. We find our way in the world, and eventually we end up where we're meant to end up. Well, you have many creative outlets, and one of the interesting things that's happened in more recent times is uh, G'day Neighbour. This way of connecting. How, mm-hmm. how did that come about for you, and what what has it? What have you got from it? Um, I think you know we you know at the start of COVID we all were looking you know what do we do next sort of thing, and you know a lot of my work was still American based. I was actually literally the week before was meant to jump on a plane to head off to do a show in Chicago and then New York. Um, anyway, so that shut down and before we knew it, everything was sort of shut down. Everyone was scrambling for toilet paper. Um, I worked out a long time ago, you could get four wipes out of one piece of paper. Um, so I wasn't rushing, but I knew I had to change the way I looked at the world in a very short amount of time. And I think somewhat blessed growing up in a restaurant world where you sort of have to work 11th hour, last minute, my first thought was, how do I help my community? How do I, how do I, it wasn't even how I grow something. It was just how do I be present for my community? So the first thing I did, you know, so doing the, this Instagram live thing called G'day Neighbor, that sort of just came and evolved. And that was through, you know, another, a, a good friendship. But but ultimately it was opening my windows to those walking past and just checking in. And like, it was, hey, you going? I got to know everyone. I started making handmade pasta and literally just giving handmade pasta out out the um out the window but we all know everyone was making sourdough and banana bread so i jumped on that bandwagon and started creating you know social media content around that and then then we started making content on how we lose the weight from all the banana bread and sourdough we were eating <laughs> so i was just going with the times but g'day neighbor in it and it's in it's in the beginning was just a way of connecting with my community and the way i guess how it served me now it's it's given me a community of people who check in on me. It's very self-serving. It's, it's, it's a very special little place and I hold it dearly. And I think more importantly, it's, it's the kids who stay curious and knock on the window and ask questions and share little moments, um, getting to know them, getting to know their parents. But I, we have this incredible village vibe. 
has this changed the way that you cook during this time? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think, you know, it was interesting because over the weekend we had a taste of Coogee at uh, the entertainment quarter and and there was myself, there was Tommy Walton, Colin Fastage, um, Robbie Dillon, but a, a few of us, and we had all changed. I, I could see how we'd put less pressure on who we were. There was less there was less ego and what we were putting out. We cared less about the expensive ingredients. We cared more about how do we stretch the budget, how do we have less wastage. But I think that that's a common thread through the – through all communities and through the world now is how do we consume less you know, the stories of um, regeneration and regenerating the land. Like there's all these underlying stories that need to come to fruition and how do we spread that message? So I think our our cooking has adjusted um, right across the board. You mentioned that a lot of your work is in the U S so what sort of impact has that separation had on you? To be honest, it's been quite positive. Um, but because I would say that, you know, I cast my net pretty far back in 2005. I'd started doing television in 2000 with Channel 9, went to Channel 10, then, you know, got a bit of a foot in the door in the States with, with a couple of the networks. And I ended up moving to America in 2006. So I had a storage facility here. I moved to the States, I had a storage facility in LA, and then ultimately come back to, to Sydney, then back to New York. So... I was like, I cast that net so far with the amount of travel, the communities, like these little sub-communities around the world <laughs> through storage facilities and friendships. But ultimately, COVID had sort of obviously reeled everyone back in. We had to, we were quite confined, but I realized the importance of of having a base. I'd never, hadn't really had that, you know. I left home at 18. I was living in New Zealand and moved, just moved countries. I wanted to get into cooking. I mean, I've always wanted to cook and found my feet. Um, but I never really had a base and, and COVID sort of forced forced the hand a little bit and it was time to create some solid foundation. Um, and and it's, it's been very good for me. I think it was a great way to manage mental health. I think when you feel a little displaced, um, as soon as you have a little bit of a community, someone, in, you know, it could be just a neighbour who checks in on you or who doesn't necessarily know your past or care less about who you are, but more about being present. I mean, it's been, it's been quite a magical space for me and I've utilised it to my advantage. You've spent many years as a professional chef and um, have evolved your career, but take us back to when you were young. When, when did you first start getting interested in food? Yeah, I sort of grew up in a family of food professionals, you know, like like everyone, you know, mum cooked, but my grandparents on both sides were either in cater- catering or hospitality. My grandmother on my mother's side ran uh, the catering at a, at a girls' school in the South Island of New Zealand at Waitaki Girls. And I just remember at, at, at a very early age, and it's, you know, it's quite uncanny you know, to think at four and five, it's like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do, because I just remember the smiles and the laughter and the happiness. Ultimately, you're the little kid that's being carted around and then the women offering you lollies and biscuits in a kitchen sort of thing just to get you to smile. So... I, it, it's a seed that was planted and I just I just seemed to have stuck with me. I grew up, um, ultimately ended up growing up in Queensland anyway for the, the best part of my, I guess, you know, the, my earlier childhood from there to say three, no, so three through to 13. And it was quite, quite a, quite a heavy time in my life. There was a lot of, I guess, there was a lot of domestic violence and associated, you know, to my mom and there was, there was abuse on all levels, but 
so you tend to you tend to block a, a lot of that out and there's one good seed that was planted and it's just a, it's it's a memory for you and so my go-to was like oh my god I want to be a cook I want to be a cook so despite you know small amounts of trauma in, in my earlier childhood that little seed was planted and and whatever I could do whether it was at primary on a primary school level or high school I would do home economics I would take opportunities to cook a meal I, I could growing my own garden I, di I didn't make the association as a kid like if I grow tomatoes and watermelons that would that would come into my thought pattern when it came to cooking none of that like that didn't come to later but I just realized that all those things and growing up on a farm and sort of utilizing a whole animal when it was when it was you know butchered like all those things sort of added to my life. And it, it, there is a, this, there is this full circle moment in your life is like, oh, wow. So that, oh, wow. It's quite, it's quite spiritual to be honest. Um, but I was lucky all those seeds and for whatever, for whatever thing, whatever was going on in my world, like all these little seeds were planted and they, they just ultimately they, they've come to fruition and, and they've, I feel like I've become a better storyteller because of them. How did cooking back then make you feel? I was limitless. Um, I think like any young chef, and it's interesting because I've only just met someone who's 14 and I'm just like, oh, my God, that was me. And he well advanced because of television. This this kid is just beyond, like, his energy and passion. But I think I think for me there was this, you know, like any kid who's, who's like, unsure of what they want to do when they leave. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I had to leave the country. I had to, you know, there was when I left school, I got at. 18 i'd still look like a 12 year old i was little and like i would go for job interviews like oh we don't really have anything for your size <laughs> and i didn't flourish i didn't i didn't sort of grow into my body till i was 21 but anyway ultimately i ended up in sydney i started working at revisis in bondi beach that and was offered an apprenticeship and offered an apprenticeship this was when max's shoe store was underneath and megan brown was the head chef um, and then ultimately went on to Armstrong's and then to Bistro Moncur in 93, I think like a year after it opened. Take us into that first times that you were in commercial kitchens. What did it feel like? Do you have any stories of, of the early days? Loved it. Oh, my God. I loved it. I loved it. I remember, you know, you're, you're making, gosh, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week sort of thing. So microwaving bread rolls and pouring butterscotch, butterscotch sauce on it and eating it with ice cream and um, seeing people pass around a plate with drugs on it was like, gross like i didn't touch drugs I, I managed to veer away from drugs i didn't drink alcohol till i was 30 but i was immersed into this culture of like oh my god oh and this was my this is my favorite story you know coming from new zealand and quite sheltered there was a guy that worked on the floor he had long hair and i'm like that guy's gay for sure he's got to be gay look he's long hair so i was very there's a bit curious about him and anyway ever all these other guys were big buff muscular looking these oh, these guys are awesome and now so they were jason how far can you put that banana down your throat oh this far or they'd be you know but ultimately i worked out the guy with the great with the long hair was the only straight one and actually gay men in sydney were big and butch and buff so that was my that was my that was my foray into sydney and the hospitality scene i think everyone was gay and everyone loved a good time and a party and so i loved the energy associated with hospitality it was it wasn't necessarily the late nights but it was the community and the family and and having megan brown as a head chef you know at 18 um you know she would check in on me and I didn't, I didn't quite understand. You're not my parent, but you sort of care for me. It's like quite strange. Like, 
can't I just do what I want to do, do what I want to do? And like, so if I'd come in and I would be pulling a face because my eyes were sore from being out late at night and dancing at the Bondi hotel, she'd be like, you know, you need some more sleep. And I'm like, Oh, that's a thing. You can tell me that. Okay. Then. So I listened. So I think there was a huge amount of respect. So leaving country, not really having parents to sort of navigate your way through things and not really having a credit card. Like I learned from, from people around me. So the people I worked with, my new flatmate who was also on hospitality, like I just learned so much from the age of, you know, 18 through to 21. I and mean, ultimately at 23, I was head chef at Bistro Moncur. So there was just, yeah. I just did what I could to learn more and more and more. Take us into, into that kitchen. Bistro Moncur was one of the most influential in Sydney of, of its era. Mm. What, what was it like in that kitchen and being in that role so young? Yeah. I, I, what was really special about Moncur was I think – it was all new for me. I had spent, um, I'd left um, Ravisi's um, after a year and a half doing an apprenticeship. The second chef had gone on to do Armstrong's in Manly. So I went with Steve Nichols. Steve Nichols stayed there for a year and then he moved on. And then I was like, oh, what? Oh, well, I know this guy, Bill, Bill Deverell, who's working at Mr. Moncur. I've heard a few things about it. My mate Chris has worked there for a little bit as well. I go It's back in the eastern suburbs again. Why don't I just walk in? And coincidentally, Colin Holt was running it. Um, at the time as head chef um, and someone had just literally either got had been sacked or walked out that day or hadn't worked out. And when can you start? And so two weeks, we'll see you in two weeks. So literally I, I remember where I sat. I remember the conversation. I remember being as nervous as all how I was like, I was into surfing. I was like, Oh, I really want this job, but I could go surfing, but now I'll do the job instead. Um, so, so I took on, I took on, I took on that role as a, as, as at the end of my second year apprentice, apprenticeship. But I just everything was new. A bronze of salt cod. I was like, what's salt cod? A riette of rabbit. What's a riette? Like everything was new. There was all this new terminology. It was things that we weren't even learning at TAFE. I was like, wow, this is really special. And then we'd make sausages. Or well, then we'd make this cafe de Paris butter that had twenty four ingredients. I'm like, this is ridiculous, but I love it. And the restaurant's busy. And and, the, and Damien Pignolet, he's like this, everyone talks to him and has this respect for him. Like, there was just this culture that that existed. At, you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd sit down and have breakfast. But so that, that family environment just was just got thicker and there, there was more care and there was more love. There was, you know, the picking through Chervil at one o'clock in the morning because it had started to turn yellow. I was like, this sounds like a shit idea, but I love it. You know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. It was slowly sort of turning like moss on my skin. You know, this, I just was becoming it. And hence why, you know, those opportunities as they opened up to go from obviously finishing out my apprenticeship to pastry chef, to the sous chef, to, to the head chef, like it happened very, very quickly. And there was a very small turnover in that restaurant. And like, I can't even, you know, it blows my mind that I managed to move up through it so quickly but i remember when the opportunity was presented to me to would, would i be interested in being the head chef it was it wasn't even a thought it was like yes why don't i get this earlier you know and so so and i look back uh i think 23 to be holding two hats it was a huge responsibility but i will tell you this i was very lucky to have damien pinulay holding my hand the entire way through it to the point though where damien understood the importance of mentorship but didn't want me to put him on a pedestal, but wanted me to surpass his knowledge too. So he would put me in front of other opportunities and share space with me when he would do his cooking classes or 
or when he was doing his cookbooks, he would love for me to put a recipe in it. Like there was always these opportunities where I felt like I was, I was part of something, not someone's tool. It was really, it was a very, it's been a very special time for me. Do you have any stories of that time with Damien that speak of that connection that you had? Yeah, I look many. I just, Damien, look, Damien was and is, is such a carer and such a giver knowing his background. Um, you know, just stories of going to do wine dinners, like Wyndham Estate, for example, and, you know, we're driving in his Saab and we're listening to Buena Vista Social Club. And it wasn't about the food. It was about the connection. Um, so we would, you know, Damien and I still tell stories of, you know, doing a dinner for 250 people. And, you know, he was, you know, he remembers my being up to my elbows, mixing a rice, you know, this creamed rice uh, in a big brat pan and a custard forming around it and braising rhubarb and, and being up, you know, sorting through, you know, you always talk about the things that were going wrong, but how it just became this magical night. And, and it was about the music. Like you can bring all these elements into one thing and it automatically just transports you back to such a wonderful nostalgic moment. That period of time created a lot of opportunities and you started doing things on television. How did, how did that all begin? It was interesting, um, Huck, because, you know, I would never... I would, it, television was never on my radar, but, you know, back in 2000, I think it was when Jamie Oliver really hit the scene here uh, with The Naked Chef. And I know at the time Channel 9 was looking, uh, was looking, I was getting a lot of notoriety, as was, you know, Darren Simpson, Ashley Hughes from Alio. There was a lot of young, young chefs and there were particular pieces in the paper and, you know, I was getting invites to this, that and the next thing. It was like... You're sort of becoming like a little bit of a rock star without having to sing. It was quite cool. So I can go here and there. I can still do my hours. You're getting some recognition. You know, mum loved when, you, you know, you'd send her a little clip from the paper. I actually had to mail that. We couldn't sort of snap a shot and email it to her. I had to actually send the bloody thing. Um, and so you just felt this energy. And like like the industry, I like went from step to step to step. And you, I just kept up with that momentum. So the TV thing presented itself because Channel 9 had been looking for someone for 10 months. There was a piece in the paper. The heading was Young Gun Celebrity Chefs Cook Up a Storm. I still have that clip of myself and Darren Simpson, um, Ashley Hughes, and we all did a piece All did a piece to camera. The interesting thing was that Darren and um, Ashley had both worked at the River Cafe where Jamie had worked at as well, but ultimately I ended up with that gig. Um, coincidentally, you know, because of the English, their, 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 you know, their accents, I was in front of a camera. I was terrible. You know, it took me, I, I was lucky. I did four years and sort of slid under the radar the first two or three years, which is, was horrible. You know, I could try to get words out and I'd say button and all the time and okay. And I'd have to redo things. I'd look, I mean, channel nine, were very patient with me, very, very patient with me. But ultimately I think that, that transition, so from 2000 to 2002, I, I worked seven days a week. And ultimately, Damien said to me, he's like, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to burn out. So I decided, to, you know, it was hard. I'd, I'd been at Moncur, I think, close to nine years. Um, and I just said, look, it might, I think I see the opportunity with the television at the moment. He didn't try and hold me back. He said, look, you need to go with where your heart is and we will always remain friends. And we have and I've done other work with him. Um, so I just went with my heart and I just felt there was something, there was a way of being in front of people. I didn't know what my message was at the time. Like it starts, I feel now it's more important than what it was then, but it was like, I feel like this is, 
this is such for some reason I'm meant to be in this space, you know, and people were very critical at the time. I remember, I remember getting written off a few times. God, that shirt's horrible. Oh, what are you using that knife for? I mean, everyone's a bloody critic running television. Um, but I think, I think ultimately you learned, you learned to navigate your way through the noise and you saw everything as an opportunity at the end of the day. I saw it as a bloody paycheck too, you know, um, I would head up to Rockhampton for beef week or I'd head down to, ta- uh, to, uh, Victoria for something or over to Perth for the show where you're on stage. I love that connection. It was the thing that was missed in a restaurant when you're, bought, when, when you're back of house is that, well, you cook all day and you talk to your suppliers and you work with your staff, but you don't really get to see the customers. I felt like working on television and doing those little events outside. It was like, this was my way to chat with customers. It was really, it was really important for me. I think that sort of opened a huge doorway. In the US, you did a lot of media. How did that start for you? And what were some of the interesting sort of media experiences that you've had? Uh, the, US, the US was very interesting. I just, I managed to land a, a manager, you know, at the time who had the gift of the gab and somehow got me on Good Morning America. And once you've done Good Morning America, it's like, well, that's sort of like your, your baptism of fire, I guess. You do that and you've got, you do whatever you want after that. Um, well, you've done Good Morning America, so we know it's live television. You can hold your own. Um, and so, you know, I had had that piece. I got that got sent around to Sharon Osbourne and Wayne Brady and the E! Network, and ultimately I ended up doing all those shows. To the point, though, where I picked up, you know, this is when brands started sort of coming out, and so we see the opportunity as a chef fronting our brand. So I ended up being a, a global ambassador for Amway, which is a multi-level marketing company for literally five years. I traveled the world a number of times doing live shows. Um, this, what's funny is that being a multi-level marketing company, and this is before social media, you'd never know that, you know, the biggest show I ever did was in front of 160,000 people in China. We had like close to 500 security guards. You get on stage and there's pyrotechnics and dancers and drummers and like, I'm just cooking a piece of fish in, in broth with some white peppercorns. Jason Roberts, everybody. And there's 160,000 people screaming. Like it's, I can't even tell you that I really was immersed in this like rock star lifestyle, traveling the world, not really leaving a hotel because you're exhausted. You go in for a sound check and, and camera check. And it was bizarre. Like it, to the point I would for now is it's literally like 13, 14 years ago that I was traveling on that sort of level. But it's like, it's such a blur. And I feel like I went to all these countries, but I didn't really visit them. For someone that built a career in the industry and then became a communicator in it, what's it, what's it felt like for you in regards to your role? Like how do you approach that communication of food? Um, I think that the really important thing is, and, and, and probably maybe over the last six or seven years, even well prior to COVID, but I think after having coming back from, I was living in New York and working uh, on the ABC on a show, coming back this for a second time. So I lived in LA and I came back and the, I think MasterChef had sort of, you know, was really up and running and, and the chefs who were coming through that were getting all these opportunities. So, and I picked up a gig back in the States. I came back from there sort of almost like with my tail between my legs, like I'd done it. That, you know, I, I landed it. Well, I landed a relationship back here. So I came back to the relationship and sort of, you know, I lead with my heart. So now the relationship is probably the right thing to put my energy into anyways. And, and so then as far as any of the opportunities, I felt like I was coming back to, Oh shit doesn't matter that you've been in the States and you've done shows and, and what you've done. It's like, oh, I feel a bit unseen. I feel a bit useless here. So you've, you've got to start again. 
Like you really have to build again. So to be honest, COVID did me a favour. Like it was, it gave me a chance to build something. But ultimately, you know, I think I spent a lot of time just, you know, in the morning, and I'm not very good at meditating. I'm sort of all over the place. But you know, I'll have these thoughts, and I just. Like we grew up, we grew up in a world that's told you what to do. Like our parents told us what to do all the time. There really was the only the, the one way to do things. Schooling did the same thing. Job description sort of mandated you do what you're told. But we sort of forgot to stay curious. So now I'm at this point where I question bloody everything. You know, we we had this chat the other day with the guys from Oroking Salmon, and you know, what's going to happen to hospitality sort of thing. It's like we need, just need to question everything. And I mean, I've been so lucky for the people that I have have had conversations with, the tra- countries that I've had travelled to. It can mean this place of curiosity, and we will get through this. Like the, you know, this, this this is what's going on with COVID and and with the lack of jobs at the moment. We just need to rethink, but. Because we've we've set in our ways a little bit because of what I was you know talking about parenting and schooling and job description. There's only one way to do this. We sort of we forget to be open to new things. We forget to be curious. So I'm sort of excited for our future. I've shared with many people, like you know, even an event I did over the weekend where it was it was so quiet, but no people people weren't going out in the rain and and. Schools are closing down still with, with um, you know, COVID cases. I just keep saying to people, we have to dig the next year into the ground and we will all walk out of this together. We have to van together. It's the only way we do it. But that's, but that's how a community works. Everyone works in. Everyone has a job description, whether that it's a description or not, but they have a thing that they do. You mentioned a bit earlier um, that feeling as a young chef of being limitless, um, with your sort of extensive experience in the industry and and looking in from the outside, given what's happened in the last year and a half, how how do you see things moving forward and, and change, and what are the opportunities? I think on an individual level, the, and the circles of people that I'm within, I feel like probably the biggest conversation I have is like, how do I reinvent myself? How do I move forward? Okay, so for, for 30 years I've cooked and you know, I've been part of restaurants and I've done television. Okay, so maybe the money's gone from that and the opportunities aren't as great. So how do I reinvent myself? First and foremost, you have to break the mould of thinking that that's what you are, that you're, you're just a chef or you're just a, a TV chef. And I had this conversation with Manu Fidel just recently and he sort of broke down and just said, I can't, I don't know what I'm meant to be doing because I did the, I was cooking and then I did the TV and then the TV disappeared and the, the cooking. I'm like, well, what, what am I meant to be doing? But it's a conversation I have with many chefs. It's because we've given so much time and love and energy to an industry that then ultimately when COVID happened, it was taken from underneath of us. And then with the shortage of staff, it's like, oh, now I've got to really rethink this. I'm stretched as it is. I was the executive chef. It's like, oh, that's right. When I'm the executive chef, I don't cook as much. I'm probably probably more HR. I'm probably more figuring out other people's problems than cooking. So most people don't, or I feel like a lot of the chefs that I know, like I forgot that point where I was really enjoying cooking because I didn't have the responsibilities and the ownership and the delegation. I loved when I could just turn up to work and do my thing. So the big conversation I have with people really is based on letting go of thinking that you are something already. Why couldn't you just be perpetually evolving 
and growing into something new. But it's on a creative level. And so for me, and, and it was interesting, I was doing a little bit of background work on, on you, bud, and the music. It wouldn't matter what you were singing. It's that you sing. But people don't go, oh, you're the singer. You're, you're only as good as, you, as the last thing you put out into the world. I mean, that's what, you know, that's the saying. But I, I really believe that we're as good as what we want people to think we are. So we do what we should. We should just do what makes us feel right. Like life doesn't, unfortunately, as we get older, I'm just sick of hearing people dying around me, to be honest, whether it be family members or friends. Like it's just life gets tough. And I think as soon as you can let go of thinking that you're meant to be someone or something and you just start evolving, I cannot tell you pottery has changed my world. The amount of metaphors when you, when you pick up a, lump of mud that we don't own that comes from the earth we probably paid for it but and we throw it on a wheel and we bring it into something and we make a pot you know it takes a little time to get centered doing it but you can stretch it and stretch it and bring that the lip of that bowl all the way as far as you can possibly bring it but at some point if you don't stop it'll break or it'll collapse and then as soon as you let go of shit i just destroyed it as soon as you let go and realize it's just mud anyway make another one. In fact, I learned so much doing that, that I won't go as far next time. In fact, this one may even be better. So there are so many metaphors just in that mud. It was a way for me to sort of center myself as a way of creating purpose. But ultimately, when that piece of mud or green clay goes through the kiln for the second time and gets vitrified and comes out as something solid that may last, you know, twice as long as my carcass does, it's like, wow, this, this is this is living on a primal level. This is something that I could hand on to someone. It didn't cost me anything but my time. So I think, you know, on, on, on a bit of a whimsical way, in a way of sort of engaging my inner child, mud, mud sort of saved my thoughts and allowed me to evolve and connect on a deeper level, not just with people around me, but myself. I realized, you know, and going back to my growing up and, and probably – growing up in a situation was a lot of domestic violence and alcoholism and there was traumas associated to that and we talk about kids sort of are really defined in their first you know zero to seven or zero to ten years where their understanding of love and unconditional love and trust comes from at some point if 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 you're facing trauma whether it's you know through abuse or domestic violence it's like something happens and you have to grow up in the world very quickly. So things just become very realistic all of a sudden. It's like you let go of that inner child, but there still is that ability to re-engage that inner child. And then fuck, life's amazing again. It's like you start letting go of all the little things that niggle at you. You let go of the anxieties. You let go of – you just let go. And that and that's what allows us to, to speak of these vulnerable, these vulnerable moments. Men in general don't talk about it. I, I've – I've healed so much in the last two years talking about my shit because of it. Fundamentally, it's because I picked up a, a lump of clay and there was just automatic association with going, did you know? It's been, it's, I look, it's been a full circle moment. I look at my, I look at my, you know, I can look in the mirror now at 47, like shit, I've aged a bit, but I've come a long way in two years. I can tell you that. You've experienced the anxiety and pressures of stars and hats and being scored as a, as a chef. And that sort of world got disrupted in the last year and a half. How do you see the place and the role of that in uh, the hospitality era that's moving forward? Yeah, this is a good, very good question. I um, First and foremost, we've got to look on the ground level what food and hospitality is. It's providing meals. 
it's it's a way of um, you know connection, feeding those who need to be fed. So somewhere along the way, um, we took it upon us to I don't know, get creative all of a sudden, and like I, then through creation, and then there's then there's competition, and there's like, well, well now then now that now we're getting rated for it, so now we need to step up. It was good because what it did it was it created opportunity for young chefs to invest more time and get a little more creative. And then it created some awareness for restaurants. But I think ultimately moving forward, and this is not forever, but this is for now because of the lack of staff um, and, and hospitality people, I think we need to remove that stigma associated to restaurants. I think we need to remove the chasing of hats and and ego and 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 being less wasteful, to be honest. I think we just need to pour our time and our knowledge into young people, pour our time and knowledge into people who who feel a little bit broken by the industry, weighing in on on tipping the scales for people whose mental health has been who's been affected. And there's a re-education process. There's a there's a lifting and and lifting up process where we can encourage those who are so broken. We need to rethink wages we need to stop the wage wars um but look they're all they're all big great ideas but if we can't do it together as a community and and agree on it then it's it's it'll fall by the wayside i feel i feel a little bit broken for my friends who are still you know they're putting all their heart and soul into a big ass menu on, on, and they're just not getting the numbers through and so i can only feel that there's got to be some sort of food wastage not to mention the, their mental health they're not getting time with their family ultimately think well i'll just keep doing the hours and eventually i'll get some staff but i just don't think eventually the staff are going to come not yet till we make these changes and make it more inviting for for people to want to be back in hospitality this growth and change that you've experienced in the last two years does has that ever made you think about opening a restaurant <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I, no, I tell, I tell you, I tell you what, I tell you what really turns me on about food at the moment. And it's my time with Tommy Walton and a good friend of mine of a res. And to be honest, it's a little bit underground. It's opening up my windows and having my neighbors drop by and grab a taco. It's not, you're not playing by the book. It's one dish served well. It's a community of, um, even having suppliers who've jumped on board to support different um, uh, non-for-profits that we've, you know, that we've supported with the Oz Harvest or Black Dog Institute. And even that, you know what, I want to refine that a little bit more and do something a little bit more community, community associated. And, and I know here in Bondi, there's a, there's a particular non-for-profit which sort of helps out kids who've been affected by domestic violence where the parents have separated and they've sort of been sort of left to manage their own life. So I just, I just think, when it can't, but however, having said that, sure, a fancy new restaurant will open up and I'll go, but what if, what if I just did that? And then I quickly go, what if I can't find any stuff and I'm working every bloody hour? <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's the real tough bit. I look, I romanticize. I really do huck about jumping back into the restaurant. There is, and there is this energy associated when we do these taco nights, we have a line of people up, in, you know, in, in a in a residential area, and we Tom and I are slinging out tacos faster than the orders, are, you know, just as fast as the orders are coming in, sort of thing. It's like, 
oh, it's a machine. I love this machine. In fact, it reminds me of Bistro Moncur on a footy night down, that was down the road and people lining up at quarter to six. So we'd cook, you know, quickly seal off 20 steaks and we'd have, we'd have, you know, confit duck sort of browned on one side. Like we're, we're, we were set. So Tom and I are set and it's like, okay, windows open, let's go. And it's like, before you know it, the hairs are up on the back of your neck, like Shit, this is good. And then you, then we go, should we open a restaurant? Then you go, let's just do this. And it's not about the money. None of this is about money. This is knowing that we're here to serve, but we're not servants. And that's that's been the powerful, I guess, learnings over the last two years. We're here to serve, but we're not servants. What do you love about what you do? Um, I love that it's different every day. Um, it can be just as tiring. Like I, I would consider myself um, a digital warrior. So everything's based around social media. I work with different brands. What I do love is the brands that I get to work with. I mean, they've been very organic in the sense of the way that we've come into partnership. It's not like a whole lot of agents and managers going to, hey, you should work with this product and this is what they're going to pay you. It's like you start off on a smaller on a smaller fee with these people and you organically work it into your socials and before you know it, it just becomes part of who you are. So it's not forced. It's not you're giving a brand an identity, which ultimately just becomes a little bit of who you are. So I just love everything just seems a little bit more organic at the moment. But I've learned a lot of lessons, you know, since starting television back in 2000. You know, I worked with a lot of people. I have a lot of great connections. And I think those connections have really come to fruition as well because I remember, as I was saying before, you know, I cast my net too far and I was traveling the world and I was here and there's a storage facility here and there's one over there. I was like, fuck, where am I meant to be? And then so that that was, you know, in, the, in that, that second week of March, whenever we went into lockdown, I was like, shit, that, that was that week. I had to really start rethinking everything without purposely or mind mapping what my next two years was going to look like and did I think I was going to be where I am now. I had no idea. I was just happy to get through each week, you know, but I just knew that I had to make connections with people and, and reconnect with those I'd connected with a long time ago because they've everyone's sort of come back into – into my life and even the work's picked up again back in the States. You know, I've about to sign off on a contract to get me through next year and, and it's just shape shifted. I didn't have to travel the world or create content. There might be some events throughout the year that, that I end up at, but everything's sort of slowly coming back. You experienced um, burnout as a young chef when you were highly successful. What sort of wisdom could you pass on now to young chefs um, with the insights that you have and experience? Um, there's probably a couple I remember, I remember when the, just, just an, look, put yourself, okay, the first and foremost, put yourself first, take that first breath for yourself in the morning, you know, when you're putting your shoes on sort of thing. I still remember walking down Queen Street in the morning and taking a big breath going, best day of my life. And I was working 70 and 80 hours a week and on the, on, on my day off, I would go and work at another restaurant because I wanted to learn Thai food and I was so impressed by the guys at Long Grain and Sailor's Thai. I was like, at some point I want to do Thai food. Um, I managed it because I wasn't drinking. Just, just, I think the probably one of the biggest things is stay on track, be mindful of those late nights, don't get tied up in drugs and alcohol. Um, those things will never serve you. Do what serves you, educate yourself, whether you read books or Google something online, but just stay, stay curious, question everything. I think our teachers and our mentors there are meant to guide us, but they don't have all the answers, and at some point you'll surpass them. But just put yourself first and by putting yourself first, that's eating well, that's exercising, that's drinking plenty of water, that will serve you. 
And then later in life, you know, your thoughts and your wisdom, those things will just come to you. But I remember a piece that came out in the, you know, I was like the television guide or something like that. And I remember I just started with Channel 9. And one of the questions was, why do you, why do you like, why do you like cooking so much? Or what is it, you know, yeah, it was something to do with long lines. Why do you cook? And, and I just, I've always been quite, um, quite in touch with my emotions. And I, and, you know, this is going back 20 years ago. And I said, I do it because I want to be loved. I can, I can tell you the flack I got from my, my kitchen mate. You want to be loved? What? What's that? And I look back now. I look back now because I still have that article. I go, I'm so glad I said that. I stuck to my guns because it's true. I love that connection. And that's what it is. True love to me is that feeling that you have in your heart. It's not about someone else. It's how you feel. Everything else is just a connection. So stick to, stick to with what you believe in because at some point you're going to look back and go, I'm glad I stuck with that. I'm glad that's who I was then. And, you know, when you're younger and, everyone's looking for themselves and very easy to point a finger and, and, and make a statement and a comment. But I look back at that one thing and I go, I'm glad I said that now at the time I was like, Oh God, I wish I had said something else. That's because I like the chicks or something, but no, I'm glad I said it. I do it because I want to be loved. And I think to be honest, I think that's that connection and being that emotional person really helps build my relationship with other restaurateurs and, thickened my relationship with Damien as a mentor and, and just everything opened up, I think, because of the honesty I had for that, for the industry. Well, Jason, you're an inspiration. I know there's so much more we can talk about. We're absolutely honored to have you on deep in the weeds today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Sounds like a plan. Cheers, buddy. This is the deep in the weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.